All right, great to have you here. Alex Pearson with you on this Wednesday. There we go. Can I hear myself? There I am. All right, we're into round one of CounterPoint, brought to you by our very good friends over at Pizzaville. 416-736-3636 or pizzaville.ca. We've got John Raz, former Liberal War Room director, and John Robson. Great to have you with National Post columnist and executive director of the Climate Discussion Nexus. Hi, guys. Hello. Hi, ho. Um, so I was just talking to Charles Caboose. You know, he's probably the biggest club uh, restaurant owner in this country, and uh, they'll be opening up on Friday. They've just lost almost everything and, and uh, will never make the recovery of what they need. But one of the things he does bring up is that it's been very, very difficult to rehire staff because a lot of staff have moved on. And then I read this story in the National Post that uh, other business owners are saying they can't find enough workers because um, many just don't want to give up the federal pandemic pay, the CERB that uh, the Trudeau government continues to hand out. And if you look at the CERB, it's been paying out 500 bucks per week to unemployed workers, and um, it will be reduced to $300 a week per July. But let me start with you on this, uh, Mr. Robson, uh, as your inaugural performance here on the table. Um, you know, look, if you, if you pay people to stay home, as Aaron O'Toole said, what, a year ago, they'll stay home. Indeed. And the problem here isn't comparing what they're paid to stay home with what they're paid to work. It's understanding that the money they get for working comes at a cost. You have to put in for your 40 hours or whatever it is on the job site. You've got to get to and from work. You have to show up on time. You have to mind your manners. There are, there's a whole lot of self-control involved. And in the long run, it's well worth it. The self-control is actually good for you. And of course, as a friend of mine put it many years ago, it's hard to get a promotion when you're unemployed. But the short-run calculation of generous unemployment benefits versus going and getting a job, especially if your job isn't that great, very often favors staying home, and then it becomes a habit. And you start almost playing chicken with the welfare state of saying, yeah, well, I defy you to cut me off and watch me starve. You can't do it. And if enough people take that view then it just uh, it, it has a devastating effect on labor market participation. And that's, I mean, this is the great problem with negative income taxes, that they, uh, they work so well that they work very badly. And, you know, any economist could have seen this coming, but of course, there aren't a lot of economists in Parliament, and I don't think there are nearly enough of them in the public service. And if they are, they're not getting listened to, because this was very predictable. Yeah, it was predictable, and many people did predict it, John, uh, you know, a year and a half ago. While it was thought that, great, this is great, get money into people's hands right away, the problem was, and we even saw this last summer where you had places saying, I can't hire anybody because no one wants to work. Well, you know what? We're trying to get back on our feet. This has got to stop. We can't have people reliant on the state forever. It's uh, it's great to have John on because rarely do I get to disagree with somebody so wholeheartedly on just about everything you said. Um, so first of all, full disclosure, I'm a silent partner in one bar and one restaurant on Queen Street. And so I know a little bit about this. I've also known Charles Caboose for about 20 years personally, and I know how he operates. He's a pro, and he's going to have no trouble filling those positions. The minute that the federal government reduces CERB to 300 bucks a month, because the people who work at Charles's restaurants and bars, as do the people who work at mine, make a great deal more than that, and I assure you they miss the disposable non-taxable income that arrives in the form of tips. It is, of course, their duty. and The onus is on them to declare taxes on those tips. Whether they do or not is none of my business. But a good server, a good bartender, even a good barback can make 500 bucks a night in this town. That's one night. 
and at Charles's places, which are some of the hottest in town. So this is all food for all nonsense, piss posh, but gosh, it'll all come back in a minute. And I believe people are dying to get out, get out of those patios. They'll be out in a couple of days. Staff will come back. Certainly our staff are coming back. They're looking for work. They are bored blankless. And I think this is a nonsense article about a problem that doesn't exist. So of course, well, I mean, entirely about the uh, hospitality industry. Let's just be fair here. There are jobs that are less fun and don't involve tips. Not everybody's a waiter. Fair enough. Fair yeah, enough, that's, John. That's true. That's true. All right, we we finally got some agreement on that. Um, <laughs> Trudeau government now says. <laughs> The Trudeau government now says Canadian travelers, and pardon my dog, all of a sudden she's decided to uh, be my guardian. Um, Canadian travelers will no longer need to spend 14 days in quarantine when arriving home, and the change will go into effect in early July. It applies to Canadian citizens and permanent residents who've had full course of COVID-19 vaccine. And if you're, I guess, a traveler coming in, you'll have to take a COVID test upon arrival and then go into isolation. So this policy, John, came in late, Robson. It did not work. The Trudeau government decided last week to double down and increase fines, and now it's cancelled. I mean, can they make up their mind? <laughs> well, maybe they decided it was the prime minister not wishing to quarantine the policy. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, it, it's a sensible policy. And one of the odd things that's kind of flickered in the, in the recent stages of the pandemic is that some of the lockdown enthusiasts started to sound like anti-vaxxers, right? Because we've been told for months it's the vaccines, we need the vaccines, the vaccines will solve the problem. And then you got the impression some of them didn't think vaccines worked. I mean, I thought the reason we we're getting vaccinated is so we could neither get nor give the disease, in which case, well, if I'm as, you know, as immune as I'm ever going to get, then, yeah, why would I have to quarantine? So I think it's a sensible policy. And, you know, my view of government is if they do the right thing for the wrong reason, I'm not going to quibble all that much. It's like, yeah, this is a good idea. If you're vaccinated, you don't have to quarantine. Thank you. Let's move on. John? You know, right. I, I, I'm, I'm sort of with John on this one. The problem, of course, is that some people simply cannot get vaccinated. They're being advised by their doctors that they can't get vaccinated. The systems won't take it. The reverse to such things. You are creating two different classes of people, the vaccinated and the non-vaccinated. And it seems to me that the vaccinated will be able to travel internationally well before the non-vaccinated will. And uh, we look at New York City as an example. You can go out to dinner, you can go to a bar, got to prove you're vaccinated, doubly vaccinated, and you can yeah. get out there. You're creating a second class of citizens. And the minute you have two different classes of citizens, I point to our current problems with the way that we have handled our native relationships here in Canada. You have got struggle, you've got clash, and you've ultimately got war. So government's going to have to uh, tread around these sorts of issues very carefully, but I'm delighted to see the ridiculous machinations, fines, and 14-day quarantine demands and hotel demands uh, slowly uh, dissipating as Canada catches up with our vaccination strategy. And uh, hopefully we'll all start to be able to enjoy some of the liberty we so dearly have missed over the last year and a half. Let's quickly, um, I'll do this before we go to the next uh, side of this break. Thousands, of course, attended the vigil in uh, London Tuesday night. And then, I mean, a big takeaway for me was just all the politicians, front and center, the federal and provincial leaders, they all took the stage. They all talked. And the longer they talked, uh, John Robson, the more it felt like an election campaign and not honoring the murdered family and the city of London. I found it crass. 
uh, dishonest. And, and I, I looked at it and saw, you know, political opportunism at its worst because the federal leaders all had time in the House of Commons yesterday morning to make their statements, as did every other politician. Yeah, I, I mean, the thing is that there, there are, when some, an incident like this happens, you do at some point have to think about the bigger picture and the question of, well, is it really true that, as somebody described London, Ontario, as a city fueled by hate? And if so, what are we going to do about it? And if not, why do people talk that way? But in the short run, I always think that we ought to just remember that there are people who are dead and there are people who are missing family members and there are there are people, you know, there are empty chairs that will never again be filled and there are wounds on the heart that will never entirely heal. And we ought to be uh, in some sense of mute with horror at that at, at individual tragedy of every death, especially every life cut short. And, you know, save the posturing and the finger pointing and all that kind of stuff for later. But, you know, our politicians have gotten so used to behaving in this way that they don't they don't even know they're doing it anymore. It's like it's all they've yeah. got. And it's a sorry sight at re- in normal times and an appalling sight at this time. The family would say, we appreciate the sympathy, but no, don't don't come. This is we're burying yeah, I our mean, loved ones. Yeah, and they could very well, John, have gone. You know, it, there's no problem with a politician going to these things, but go and sit and listen. It's not about you. And that's what, you know, to me, it was just so, like, me, 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 I, I, I. And I, I just, I thought it was just calling for votes. I found it just really gross. And a friend of his once said of Theodore Roosevelt that every time he went to a wedding, he wanted to be the bride, and every time he went to the funeral, he wanted to be the corpse. <laughs> but... Uh, it, it's, but it can be a ghastly spectacle. Yeah, Mraz? It was, it was ghastly, is I guess the right word for it. The leaders of a variety of cultural groups invited those very politicians. I have to know that because I saw some of the email chains. So they were there by invitation, the leaders of cultural groups. Um, uh, the head of the NDP there, I can't even say his name without choking, is uh, actually just pouring fuel on the fire. The more you talk about racist division, the more of a conversation you're going to have, the more you're feeding these, these fires and fueling thoughts in times of economic austerity. And that would be COVID-19 racism tends to rise and and anti-cultural and and racial prejudice tends to rise. Now, having said all that, forgetting the blowhards on the stage, when I saw the pictures of that rally, to see these yeah. thousands of white Protestants showing up, I mean, they were 99% white in the, in the shots that I saw, showing up in masks, um, clearly uh, just horrified at what had happened in, you know, the city of trees, London, considered, you know, as quaint a Protestant paradise in Canada as ever did exist. It didn't look to me like they had much of a, of a larger racist problem in London, Ontario. I'd be hard-pressed to get that many people out in Toronto. So I was really encouraged. I want to just put some positives. Really encouraged by the huge turnout at that memorial yesterday. I think London showed up well, and I'm very proud to be Canadian in that respect. Yeah, I, I don't happen to agree with Mr. Singh that this country is, you know, a vile, evil pit of, you know, racist hate. Uh, you know, I, I happen to think it's, uh, you know, with faults and all, it's a pretty wonderful country and very welcoming. Not perfect, but 
very uh, wonderful indeed. And certainly the Ford government uh, getting a lot of blowback late this afternoon when they announced they'll be calling the legislation back to invoke the Constitution's notwithstanding clause to override a court ruling that tossed out new rules limiting third-party political advertising before elections. So an Ontario Superior Court judge ruled that the Ford government's recent changes to the provincial election rules, which would cap spending by third-party political advertisers at six hundred grand a year before the official month-long campaign period, are unconstitutional. So the ruling would allow for unions and special interest groups to spend and spend and spend as much as they want right up until the writ drops. Now, the Ford government's going to be stopping that. Former Premier Wynne coming out today calling it an abuse of power. John Raz, I'll let you get a kick at the can first year. How do you see this? I think that Kathleen Wynne and Doug Ford deserve each other. I can't stand either one of them. I mean, he's a toothless <laughs> curtain of a man, and she is uh, uh, best never heard from again. Let's begin there. First of all, uh, the federal law is exactly this. There are limits. They're strict. Harper brought them in, and it was for the betterment of Canada. We did not end up with the PAC system in the United States that have corrupted their democracy to a millimeter of fascist tyranny. Uh, not to uh, exaggerate, let's look at Mr. Trump and how he got in. And those were the very vehicles that saw him access and achieve power. So Doug Ford... He's actually, I cannot stand defending what this guy's doing. All he's doing is bringing the provincial law into line with the federal law. And there's an effect on federal politics and provincial politics. They are symbiotic, and I think it's terrific. And I'm surprised Doug's doing it because it might actually be to his benefit down the line to have not done it, but it's the right thing to do. So go, Doug. Invoke that notwithstanding clause. Go ahead. <laughs> Well, you know, Robson, I mean, the thing about this is uh, the left is losing their minds because this has always worked very well for them because the unions and all these working third group parties spend millions upon millions of dollars um, throwing mud at the conservatives and it plays very well for the liberals or the NDP because they don't have to spend any money at uh, doing attack ads and it does a lot of damage to the conservatives. So I guess all fair, all is fair in love and politics, no? No. Because the thing is that, you know, um, people talk a lot about rights, but when they actually encounter rights, they're like, oh, yuck, rights. And so it's always about, oh, the unions and the special interest groups, and they're going to buy democracy. What the point of these laws is to prevent citizens from having input into the process by getting together and spending money to raise issues. And that is an outrageous infringement on our right to free speech, as Frederick Douglass said. Not just the right to speak, but the right to be heard. And the politicians are like, you all shut up and let us talk. What do you think this is? We'll decide what gets discussed. We'll decide who discusses it. And nobody can spend money upsetting things. And the reason, you know, uh, Donald Trump didn't get elected because money turned democracy into fascism. He got elected because people were so fed up with the elites that they were willing to vote for a hideous boor who'd never finished a book in his life and thought it was an accomplishment. <laughs> And, and that is a huge indictment of those in power, including their desire to shut people out and just not hear what they have to say. I think it's preposterous to tell us that for a year before an election, we cannot get together, yeah. raise money, and take a stand on a public policy issue and call it an enhancement of freedom. That's censorship. The real honest-to-goodness citizens may not talk censorship. And I think it's outrageous. And I think the notwithstanding clause shouldn't exist and I think the Section 1 of the Charter shouldn't exist, and I think we should actually have freedom of speech in this country. Yeah, fascinating. It's a, yeah, of course it can. 
I mean, but that was tremendous, tremendous soliloquy. Having run 44 campaigns, <laughs> most of them here, uh, some around the world, it has, and having um, um, possibly been one of the organizers of said, for lack of a better term, political action committee on behalf of the Liberal Party here in Ontario and in Canada, I will assure you it is not individuals who fund these ads. It is large corporations, unions, and interests. Because most people will not contribute in Canada, maybe they should in an ideal world, to any such cause unless they get a tax rebate. They do not for such things, nor do they believe that they would have any say in controlling the message of those very ads. So, in theory, sir, John, I wish I wish people behaved as they were, and then I'd be standing behind your argument. But in practicum, it doesn't end up looking like that. It ends up looking like a large auto manufacturer or a large auto union, just to use two examples on either side of the left-right divide, will invest an immense amount of money, ostensibly creating a conversation on behalf of the hoi polloi. It's not a conversation on behalf of the hoi polloi. It's a conversation on behalf of their executives' interests and their shareholders. Well, if I've only got a couple of minutes. In the real, that's, you know, democracy is going to crumble. Well, I can't. Well, I, I have to say the climate discussion nexus, when there's this pre-election period, I have to be careful what I say, because it could be judged that it's related to a political issue, that one candidate's been on one side and another's mm-hmm. been on another one. I get silenced. I have to look over my shoulder for the policeman's truncheon because of this law. And that is a, an infringement of my freedom. On the issue of freedom of speech, John, I'll work on any time you want to work on correcting that in Canada. I'm standing right with you as a libertarian. That I'll back you up on. But I don't think that unless you're going to unless you're going to prohibit large contributions and make sure that these PACs are in fact funded by individuals in small amounts and represent a plurality out there and not just the interests of a corporation or a union executive, then I don't believe it's in our interest to have them exist. And as host of this show, I silence you both because I'm now out of time. <laughs> it's an outrage. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, we got a conversation. I appreciate it because it is a bit inside baseball, but it is an important one. Nonetheless, it'll be talked about for a while. Guys, thanks very much for the robust conversation. Appreciate it. It was a lot. John Raz and John, Rob- John Robson uh, squaring off tonight. So two uh, very interesting um uh, points of view. It's interesting. It's it's you no know, the people I expect to support Doug Ford don't, and the people that you would think would credit anyway. It's all backwards. It's interesting to see who thinks what. All right. When we come back, a couple of the other day's headlines coming up in the nine o'clock hour. We'll visit with our friends at Blacklock's reporter Tom Korski. He's got some interesting stuff to say. Like why did Mark Garneau block Blacklock's? You know, you've made a point when they're blocking you in the Liberal Party. And then we'll talk with um, someone with uh, formerly with CSIS about how you stamp out these hate groups when in Canada they're not exactly organized. So it's a bit playing, you know, whack-a-mole. So I'm not sure how the Liberals uh, plan on doing this, but I'll wish them the best of luck. When we come back, we'll get a couple of other days and haze lines, including why Jimmy Fallon got uh, grocery store no-frills all wrong. That's next. Stay with us here on Point on Global News Radio.